Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. This week, we'll be speaking with someone who not only had to overcome a number of challenges on his own as a blind individual, but also helps others overcome challenges of their own. We'll speak with Robert DeYoung, a practicing clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, about what those fields entail and the service he provides to his clients. We'll also talk with him about how he is able to work with clients despite being blind. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Robert DeYoung. What he suggests sounds pretty counterintuitive at first until he explains what he really means. I try to remind myself of a strategy I use, which is trying to turn a barrier into an obstacle. Oh, I don't think you meant what you just said. (laughs) You just said you wanted to turn a barrier into an obstacle? Yes, because actually an obstacle is something to get around, but it's not going to stop me from getting to where, and in fact, as a blind person in uh, mobility, obstacles can be very helpful. They can be landmark. Interesting point. I never really thought of an obstacle as a good thing, but the way you describe it, that makes a lot of sense. Right? I mean, you know, you get to a tree or you get to a signpost or um, you get to a, a, you know, a curve can be an obstacle. But curve can also be a point of reference. But if it's a barrier and something that you can't get past, well, then that's a problem. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Robert and learning about some of his interests outside of his career. My name is Robert Young, and I am a clinical psychologist. And I am a psychoanalyst. Uh, I am in my early 60s, and I currently work in private practice here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Many of our listeners have visual impairments. Do you? Yes, I am totally blind. I was born with retinoblastoma, so I lost one eye as an infant had a lot of medical treatment, and then lost the other eye roughly around age eight. For most of this discussion, we'll be talking about your professional career and your training to get into that. But I understand you've been involved in all sorts of other interesting activities. Can you review just a couple of them? So I was one of five children in my family. And I, and I was the only blind person in my family. And I was raised, and we were raised to participate. So I participated in the YMCA swim team along with my other siblings. Uh, I was a wrestler in high school and college. Uh, I've done running and baseball and more recently uh, rowing crew. So you certainly haven't let your blindness hold you back through life? No. 
Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is Robert's experiences being totally blind in his education, further training, and career as a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst. Maybe we can start out by talking about what you do and maybe what the difference is between a psychoanalyst and a clinical psychologist. So um, a clinical psychologist is someone who it's a training beyond uh, college, right? I went to graduate school, trained to be a clinical psychologist. And there are actually many avenues someone with that type of training, that type of degree can pursue. Research theory or more abstract kind of research. There's also applied research. Then there's practical ways a person can practice clinical psychology, um, which we most often think of, such as doing uh, psychological testing or psychotherapy. So lots of options once you get that initial broad training. Correct. And you're doing mostly clinical psychotherapy with patients directly? That is correct. That's what I am doing now. So before we talk in detail about what exactly you do from day to day and how you interact with patients, maybe we could talk about your journey to get where you are now, starting from when you were young. From your introduction, you obviously didn't consider blindness to be much of a problem since you were involved in participating in all kinds of different activities. But when did you first get your interest in this field? So that's a complicated question. I was mainstream. I started out in uh, reading large print uh, and then transferred to learning Braille in elementary school. Um, And then I went to my local junior high and high school. Graduating high school, I didn't know for sure what I wanted to do. And I um, went to a small liberal arts college, kind of with the intent that I would go on to school one way or another, whether it was law school or grad school or medical school. I I didn't know what. So you were pretty motivated, but you didn't have a clear direction at the time. You knew you wanted to get that degree behind you. That's correct. That opens up a lot of doors. It does. And um, I, I actually ended up majoring in biology as an undergrad. And how did it finally crystallize in your mind what you wanted to do long-term? And I think very early on, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer for a while. But when I learned what lawyers actually do, that didn't appeal to me. (laughs) (laughs) That happens to so many people when they think they want to do something and then they go find out what that job really entails. So you're in good company. Yeah, and it's an important thing I think, for people to realize that you can have ideas and they, they evolve. They can evolve if you let them. So here you were closing in on your undergraduate degree, and how did you finally jump on the next track? 
So um, I had a, a gap between undergrad and graduate school. And I uh, took some classes, uh, graduate level classes, non-degree. I got involved in a, um, as a volunteer at a crisis intervention hotline. And I got involved in some youth ministry. And I discovered that, oh, I have a lot of interest. And one way of combining them would be going into psychology. So it sounds like this break between undergraduate school and your graduate education was pretty important in terms of defining your direction and clarifying what you really wanted to do with the rest of your life. It did. And getting out there and volunteering and participating in community activities gave me the experience to realize that you know, I had some ability in that area. What happened after you decided that you wanted to pursue this further and you needed more education? So then I applied for uh, graduate school. I started getting involved in research. I found someone who eventually became my graduate school advisor. Who uh, I was working in her lab. And then once I started graduate school, I did research with her. Uh, and she played an important role in getting me going. And you were working towards a master's or PhD in psychology? Yes. And the program I went into uh, was a PhD in clinical psychology program, but we also uh, obtained a master's along the way. Mm-hmm. So I did a master's project and I did a dissertation. Now, when you applied to grad school as a blind individual, what was the reaction you got from the people in the department to which you were applying? I don't remember, you know, this was in the 80s, so it's a while ago now, but I don't remember it being a big issue in terms of the application process. It actually became more of an issue while in graduate school. What were the problems you ran into? My various faculty in my department would say, well, how are you going to do X? Or how are you going to do Y? That's always the question, isn't it? And it it is. And um, I I felt very kind of isolated and alone. And that was very difficult, actually. And what types of things did they question? I mean, clearly you could read books and write papers. What were they questioning exactly? So things uh, pertaining to how are you going to walk with a patient from the waiting room to consultation room? Um, how are you going to work with the testing material? Our training is we have to know how to do psychological testing. Oh, and administer those tests. Right. Are these psychological tests written or verbal or what? There are different components. There's verbal testing. There's um, things that they write. There's objects that they manipulate. And, and yeah, um, you know, there's like the um, famous uh, Rorschach tests, which mm-hmm. are these abstract ink blocks. Um, and... You have to hand the card to the person with a certain 
orientation and then write down their responses. So how did you wind up dealing with some of those issues? So, you know, I developed methods. I, I would put braille labels on the back of the card so I knew the orientation and I knew which card I was handing them. And then in the 80s, I had a Versa braille and I would write down the responses on the Versa braille. Just for our listeners who don't know what a Versa braille is, this is a portable, refreshable braille device that you can use to take notes. Correct. So this may be a silly question, but I understand why the person responding to the ink blot or Rorschach tests would need to see them in order to respond to them. But why would the person administering the test need to have any vision in order to administer it as long as you know which card is which and which way it goes? Well, and right, but that would be one in a, how, you know, how are you going to administer it? How are you going to know what card? Well, and then I had it come up with a method. Yeah, if the sighted people never saw you do this, they just can't envision how people overcome those issues that are pretty simple to overcome if you're used to being blind. Right. So it sounds like you pretty easily got admitted into these places, but after you got there, people started asking these questions about these kind of practical day-to-day activities. And that was my experience then. I would say, you know, probably much, quite a bit different now. Um, and certainly technology would make a lot of what I did then easier now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes, that was my experience. So you eventually got your degree and then you had to start your own practice or did you work for someone after that? So um, I had a particular interest in working in the area of working with survivors of trauma. And I had done some of my training in the VA system and I was applying for jobs and and, and not getting them. Um, So I spent some time volunteering my services to get more experience and load up my resume. And one of those activities was I volunteered with an organization called the Marjorie Kovler Center for the uh, Treatment of uh, Refugees of Political Torture. And so these are people fleeing from their home countries uh, because they were being tor- tortured there and, and seeking refuge here in the U.S. Um, and I would do assessment and treatment with those individuals. And that's how I got experience. And then eventually I took a job here at the VA hospital in Ann Arbor and uh, eventually uh, went out on my own. It's interesting. We've talked to many blind professionals and often as your experience sort of underlines, Getting your first job is the most difficult one. Getting your foot in the door is very important. And, of course, that's a problem for sighted people, too. But I think it's particularly hard for blind individuals, considering the reticence of employers who don't know how these blind folks are going to perform. But it sounds like your approach to solving that problem was to get lots of experience and then show people that you had a record of success. Oh, and this is one of the things that... uh, Thinking about talking with you today, I, I wanted to get across is yes, there are definitely exterior 
difficulties, right? People getting to recognize what I have to offer. I, I think another challenge that I eventually learned is recognizing for myself what I have to offer. I went into psychotherapy myself. As a patient, you mean? As a patient, right. Particularly while I was doing this volunteer work, you know, postgraduate school. And um, after a while, not only did I get one job offer, but I got three job offers. After you acquired some of this experience? Experience and also some, something opened up inside of me. I see. So it sounds like you got this advanced degree, you're applying for jobs, and everybody's telling you, no, 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 you can't do this. And after a while, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you lose confidence in your own abilities, and you needed to shore that up somehow. Yes. And I think it's um, often, and I see it in my patients as well, it's not only a recognition, but it's a growth that can happen that you know, it's like, oh, I have more to offer here than I realize. Well, that's a great concept because I think, you know, through the diversity of people, we all have something to offer, but it might be something different from each of us. And we all have to realize what our particular strength is and what our particular contributions can be. So now it sounds like all through your life, from when you were young until you were older, you soldier through a number of challenges, a number of people and organizations being skeptical of what you could and could not do. And now you finally got your degree behind you. You have a job working in the field that you wanted to work in. What kind of reaction do you get from patients that come to you? Do you have to fight all these battles over again? Rarely. Most often uh, in the first meeting, patients don't necessarily know ahead of time that I'm lying. Some do probably the majority do not. And, you know, we're there to talk about them, and I spend most of the time talking about what brings them there and background information and all that. But at some point, I'll bring up the fact that I'm a person who is blind and what are their thoughts and feelings about that. And I get all sorts of reactions. A very common reaction is, I like it that you can't see me because... I'm so self-conscious about mm-hmm. how I look, or I can't make eye contact. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people with self-esteem issues have trouble making eye contact. And then there's others who, you know, want to ask a lot of questions and respond to those, or there's, or I have a relative who's blind, I know something about that. Or, so there's a lot of different reactions. And then that's kind of the initial. And then kind of down the road, well, it, it comes up in different ways. Um, but that's much, and then it relates much more to what we're working on that is related to their particular issue. So it sounds like once you get past this initial interaction, in a one-on-one situation, it's relatively easy to put your clients at their ease and just get past the blindness thing. It's like any other characteristic, right? That sometimes it's more or less relevant. You know, how tall you are or what gender you are. 
So when I told a friend of ours this afternoon that we were interviewing a clinical psychologist for our show, she asked about being blind and knowing facial expressions. How important was that to their practice? And how do you get feedback other ways? Well, it's a great question. And actually, it's not an uncommon question that I get from patients. First of all, it's true. I don't see facial expressions, and sometimes I miss things. And uh, sometimes I miss things like uh, people, you know, tearing up. Uh, and that, like, they don't go quiet for a moment. And, but I also hear it in their voice. Um, and uh, people will tell me, it's very interesting how spontaneously people will tell me um, whether it's, you know, I'm crying, I'm smiling, or um, I also hear movement, you know, or I can tell their hand is turned away from me. Or, and I will ask, you know, oh, what was that noise? Um, you know, it's interesting in my response to this person, that was some of the exact answer that I gave this individual. I said, you know, just because you're blind, you may not see the facial expressions, but you can tell by the tone of people's voice, if they're fidgeting, you know, how they're moving, where they're looking. And you're in some sense more attuned to some of these non-visual interactions and activities going on that can, you know, color your judgment of what's going on and help you. And context makes an important difference as well. And um, that takes developing what we call a third ear. Certainly, blind people are capable of doing that the same way anybody else is. To me, the big issue is not whether the blind person can tell what the other person's psychological state is because I mean I've been married to Pete for 36 years so I've had a long time with him and I know Pete knows everything everything you know and he can tell what your nonverbal cues mean whether or not he can see them but we recently moved and so we've got all these new friends and it's really interesting watching them learn that the blind person really can tell everything that's going on, that they don't have to say, oh, I'm smiling. He knows they're smiling because their voice changes. Right. So do you run into pushback from patients or other doctors who might be referring a prospective patient to you, colleagues? Not in a real open manner. No. I think some of that may go on, but it's, it's more um, subtle. With patients, the advantage is if I start to sense that, then we, I find ways to talk about that. Um, with colleagues and you know, um, you know, other professionals, that's a much more challenging situation. If I have a forum, yeah, I'll talk with them about it, but you know, if it's not always easy. Yeah, I'll bet. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. 
Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about clinical psychology and psychoanalysis and how to contact Robert DeYoung directly. So if people had questions for you about your experiences or getting some advice, is there a way they could contact you? I welcome them to send an email. It's um, my last name, first initial, E like dog, E like echo, Y-O-U-N-G-R, at U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. So young R at U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. That's probably the best way for people to reach me. And do you have a website? I do not. Um, there is a website called psychologytoday.com, which has um, all kinds of very useful information for people uh, interested in psychology. Um, there, there's articles to read that are written for the late public. There's also um, find a therapist and you can find my location or type of therapy or type of insurance or and I'm on I'm on the psychology today I have a post in there so someone could search by my name so if somebody were potentially interested in pursuing a career as a psychologist where would you suggest they start there are resources with the American Psychological Association which also has its own website at APA.org. Actually, another website that um, if people are particularly interested in psychoanalysis, the American Psychoanalytic Association, another APA, also has a website with lots of information, including um, a link for find an analyst. A another resource um, a new one I mentioned is um, uh, podcast. I love podcasts myself. I listen to a lot of them. There's one called Psychoanalysis on and off the couch. That one covers all kinds of topics about how psychoanalysts work, both in their office and in other settings. So a great way for people to find out what the profession's about on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, and uh, the many different um, applications of um, something that has sort of been stereotyped as, you know, people lay on the couch and there's somebody behind them and all the person behind them says is, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And you can find all of that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And just to remind people, we're still soliciting input from our listeners for some positive experiences that may have come out of being socially isolated at home during this COVID-19 pandemic. You'll find instructions for submitting a short audio to us for inclusion in the show at our website. That's it for show number 2025. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be speaking with Joey Stuckey, who is an award-winning blind guitarist, songwriter, singer, composer, producer, radio and television personality, music columnist, educator, and sound engineer. 
And we will speak with Joey about his life journey and the keys to his success, and we'll incorporate a few audio clips of some of his work. And Joey certainly was a lot of fun to talk with, so I hope you'll join us again next week. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.